0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending October 22nd. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up this week, our last week on air before we go off and have a bit of a holiday, uh, you will hear us um, having a bit of a conversation about non-alcoholic drinks, uh, when they go wrong, despite all your best efforts. Also, Elizabeth McCarthy pops in for book reviews and tells us about 4,000 Weeks Time and How to Use It by Oliver Berkman. We also speak to Anthony Lowenstein about his 20 Years in Afghanistan project.
1: I have a chat about playing golf with Dad and how much I get scared whenever I hear someone scream, (laughs) FALL! Uh, Vanessa Taholka joins us for Tech Talk and chats about Britney Spears' dad who's accessing her iCloud account. Uh, And moving in with your partner, when is too soon?
2: And Michael Harden joins us to discuss the versatility of miso soup. Miso. Miso.
0: Miso. (laughs) We'll see you in a week. Triple R.
2: You try and do the right thing sometimes and it just backfires. There's this uh, zero-alcohol gin sold at a uh, major alcohol retailer, which you'll be familiar with due to its opening hours. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's been recalled due to uh, microbial contamination. So you get this non-alcoholic gin. It's a 700ml bottle. I'll say the brand. It's Banks and Burbridge. Uh, Alcohol-free gin. It's been available for sale and the distilling companies recalled it. Because it may cause illness if consumed, the microbial contamination uh, means you know food or drink contaminated with microorganisms, including bacteria, viruses, mould, fungi, or toxins.
0: Oh, good! Oh, so, wow! All those yeah. um, Priggers people out there doing <laughs> the right Yeah, thing and...
2: Totally. Yeah. That's
1: crazy. But my, my uh, one of my best, <laughs> I can just food recall. Uh, one of my best mates who I live with, she went off alcohol for uh, twelve months. Uh, she was drinking this gin. Yes, you've just said it, and I've had a look, I'm like, oh, no way. Um, She was, because she was, (laughs) I tasted it too, I didn't have too much of it, because I just wanted to see what it was like. Was it good? Um, It was okay, I think all, from what I've tasted, non-alcoholic beer and wine is okay. Um, Actually, some beer is actually really good, but... that's crazy that she was drinking this, but she would, um, yeah, she was not drinking alcoholic beer. So I remember um, I think we had a few people over at our house and I went and got her some non-alcoholic beer um, and she drank like one or two and then she noticed on the bottle that it had 0.02% alcohol. I mean, she was devastated because it said non-alcoholic. You just go and pick it up. But some of them just have a small percentage.
0: Apparently apparently if it's point under, I don't know if this is right, but if it's under 0.05%, they they used to not have to say it on the labels because ah, it's such a minute low, amount, but yeah. I think that's changed now, which is why it actually says it. Yeah. But she probably previously it wouldn't have said that. Yeah, um, right. So it was classified as no alcohol.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Yeah. So I got it, and she was loving the first couple, but then she was because she was all in, so she refused to drink the other beers. She's like, "Oh, oh no," because she just like, "I'm not drinking alcohol. I'll instead drink this poisonous gin." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, I mean, 0.02 percent is that just like a worker is wearing hand sanitizer that drops
1: knee? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, you know, I had a friend um, that was uh, she was pregnant, and we had a football preseason um, pub crawl. Uh, and she was like, well, I like, think we just assumed that she wouldn't want to come. She's like, no, I'm coming. I, like, this is going to be fun. I'm... So she came and she drank non-alcoholic beer. But I just couldn't think of anything worse. Just sitting on this bus, everyone was just drunk and going crazy. On the way home, because people were so loose, beer was getting thrown. Like, it was stupid, silly. And I remember I was sitting next to her and she got beer spilled all over her and she wiped her face. She's like, oh, well, that's what happens. I'm like, oh, my God, this is ter- well, terrible for people <laughs> to be behaving this way. But she was just so all fine with it and just drank her non-alcoholic beer and, and felt like she was a part of it. She, she, I think she had a bit of FOMO if she wasn't there. Okay,
2: I get the idea behind non-alcoholic beer and wine, I suppose, but Spirits? Spirits yeah. is odd
0: to me. There's some really friggin' great beers and wines I yeah. discovered right at the end of my pregnancy. Oh. Um, but spirits to me is like you're drinking spirits because you want alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a wine can be a refreshing drink, a beer can be. A beer, yeah, and you knock off work <laughs> and you're like, Ugh. it's so funny. I like, we had a um like a hen's party a couple of years ago, and it was a winery tour. Yeah, and a girlfriend of mine was like heavily pregnant and was so determined to come. And came on it. But during, like, as the day went on, we'd all sit there going, How are you doing? Oh, drinking our wine. Ah. And by the you know, third winery, we're going, hey, there you do. you do a little sip. <laughs>
3: oh,
0: Fourth winery, she's called her husband and gone, Come pick me up. Like, wow. I cannot. I cannot get through this. Fair enough. And she'd start off so determined. to Great day out with the girls. This is gonna be awesome, yeah. and you know. And then was like, "Get away from me! You're, yeah. just, you're yeah. disgusting! And stop like putting wine under my nose." Like oh. I was, I felt like a disgrace. Yeah,
2: my um dad found the the shed was getting demolished or whatever. He was going through it, found homebrew bottled that was twenty six years old. Oh, and he drank it, oh. which which I think is supposed to murder you. I'm pretty no, like dead. He should be dead.
0: Yeah, right. um,
2: and I asked him how does it taste. He says I. would know, my taste buds have been destroyed by decades of smoking.
0: (laughs) We're going to worry more about fitness fanatics.
3: (laughs) Melbourne's Own. Triple R.
2: Book hoarder Elizabeth McCarthy is here to tell us what's new on a stack. Morning, Elizabeth.
4: Hey, Daniel. Hey Sarah, hey Bobby, hey Max. (laughs) Hello. Um, Yeah, this morning I thought I'd talk about this wonderful book that's just come out and was perfect lockdown reading. It's called 4,000 Weeks Time and How to Use It by Oliver Berkman. Mm. And Oliver Berkman, um, for many years, wrote a column in The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. He's the author of Happiness, who for people who can't stand positive thinking. Um, he's done a lot. He's, he's sort of combined science and philosophy um, and how to and self-help in this sort of wonderful package in this book. And this book just seems kind of perfect for our times. Um, so it, he starts off by sort of writing about how the concept of time management and winning the day and writing a to-do list are, are relatively new concepts And there's really no evidence that these attitudes that we have to time um, is something, you know, time as being something that you nail and you smash and you win. There's no evidence that this leads to greater happiness at all. And, in fact, quite the contrary. He writes about how striving to make the most of your time and planning everything out and trying to win the day means you actually might be missing out on life. Right. So he canvases – really kind of self-help bending concepts such as the liberation of writing a not-going-to-do list, Um, (laughs) how being a planning junkie is just always going to lead to stress because we will pretty much always be confronted by things not going as we planned. he writes about how we should – try to experience time as something that is um, non-commodifiable. Did I just say that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And how difficult that is, e.g., you know, factory workers who punch in and out whenever they do anything like a toilet break. Um, You know, that sort of concept of, like, their time is highly commodified. Lawyers who work in the concept of billable hours and how that can infiltrate how they view every aspect of the time in their lives. And... He explores how the idea of getting everything done so that you can relax is fraught with the anxiety of goalpost shifting. So it might mean that you're, you know, you get everything done, but you're just going to find more things to do to fill your time up with and greater and more absurd expectations of yourself and an even bigger to-do list. So so he's really big on looking at our lives as finite and looking at our um, your life as just a blip in a mm. continuum and how that can really lower expectations of yourself mm. um, and that if we want to seriously free ourselves with this burden of winning at life and getting more done, um, it's, it, it's just not – your life has a limit and the sooner you embrace that, the happier you'll be. And he talks about um, – Lots of research has been sort of done into how people experience time. And one of the um, fascinating examples he uses is an example of how in Russia during the Cold War, authorities literary, literary, um, literally tried to redesign a working week so that productivity would never stop, so that a workforce was always working. So every worker worked for four days and got one day off. And this transformed the way people thought of time. But what happened was that many people in families and communities didn't have the same four-day roster. So husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and people who wanted to hang out couldn't spend their stupid four-day roster and one day off together because these rosters didn't align. And so social lives were destroyed. And I found that really interesting, Um, you know, the way that we're, the way that we spend our time and are permitted to spend our days and the happiness of those days can can actually, and research shows this, can be very dependent on how those we care about are also spending their time. Mm. For example, and this made me think of how, like, so you three are having a week off next week, having a week of leave. Now, I reckon that if it was rostered for, for one of you to have – Next week off, and two of you to keep working, and then you know the following week another one of you had the week off, and then the two of you kept working. I don't know if that would make the three of you happier. I think part of the happiness of the three of you getting the week off next week is dependent on knowing that your other two colleagues are also having time off.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah.
4: Yeah, so that was really mind-blowing to me. Um, he also talks about this university professor in the States who gets all her students as their very first assignment to go to an art gallery and stare at one work of art for four hours straight. And she looks at that as an assignment in not rushing and paying attention. Yeah. Um, so, so he canvases, you know, how, how not striving takes a lot of will for people. Um, and there's also, you know, so he, he does have lists in this book, such as 10 tools for embracing your finitude um, and, you know, such as adopting a fixed volume approach to productivity, deciding in advance what to fail at, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, consolidating your caring time, um, focus on what you've already completed Embrace boring and single-purpose technology. Mm. Um, seek out novelty in the mundane. So, it, look, I spent—I started reading this book um, a couple of weekends ago at like 11 on a Saturday morning and finished it at like 11 that night. It was a wonderful day just to spend Although a lockdown who, who's day counting, thinking, though? thinking about time. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, and 4,000 weeks refers to what?
4: Well, If you live to a certain age, which I think he says, you know, if we all live to where like about 70, we get, there are 4,000 weeks in our lives.
2: Oi, oi, oi. So it strikes a balance between, I suppose, confronting in some ways and, you know, it provide some epiphanies along the way but also some hope.
4: Oh, absolutely. It's really, I think it's a really hopeful book and a sort of a de-stressor type book. Although I did have one moment, the next morning I woke up and sort of felt refreshed as I always do when I, after I've had a big chunk of time reading. Um, but then I started to feel stressed again because I thought, now I have to completely reimagine the way I view time. Right. That was really stressful.
0: Well, when you have a job, <laughs> when you have a job as well, I mean... There's, there's limits yeah.
4: to that, right? Yeah, but he, he also drills down on things like, you know, this idea of um, having an inbox zero and, you know, winning your email, trying to get on top of your emails is mm. just always, always going to lead to disappointment.
2: Because mm. as you know, I'm usually, uh, I te- you know, I'm a bit sus on these books sometimes, like Ariana Huffington saying, Slow down, slow down. It's like, well it's all yeah, right yeah. for you. You've already Huff. smashed life and yeah. won it and created, yeah, And right. yeah, and uh, so the idea and I'm sure that his editor wasn't wrapped with the idea of Time's Fluid Man.
4: Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's always and you know, people like Ariana Huffington and um, you know, Richard Granson and all these kind of high profile corporate winners. They they they're often they're writing from a perspective of actually having won their life, and <laughs> enormous amazing. success and financial stability. You know, you don't get the the people who have lost at life writing these kinds of books. Yeah, you know, I know. Um, they don't have time. I mean, a, Oliver Birch, the author of this book, he's actually a writer. I mean, he's not. He's a, he describes himself as a reformed productivity junkie. <laughs>
2: That's great. <laughs> oh, how fun!
4: Yeah, I just, I love this. I love this book during lockdown. This book is a really good companion to Charlotte Wood's um, The Luminous Solution. So you guys interviewed Charlotte a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I would highly recommend people to read Oliver Berkman's book first because he looks at the way you can reconsider time. And then Charlotte Wood's book The Luminous Solution is about how you can spend your time dreaming and creating and playing Um and yeah, so I think these two books are really good companion books.
2: Excellent. Four thousand weeks: time and how to use it by Oliver Berkman and the publisher.
4: Uh, that's a really good question. Vintage. Okay. Vintage is the publisher Elizabeth? Yeah. Thanks heaps. No worries.
5: Triple R.
2: Anthony Lowenstein is an independent journalist, author of books including Disaster Capitalism and a filmmaker who has reported extensively on the war in Afghanistan and is behind a new collaboration between artists and journos called 20 Years Project. And to tell us about it, the writer joins us now. Anthony, welcome back to Breakfasters.
6: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
2: It's our pleasure. Now, you've been cooking this up for a couple of years. Uh, what, what have you done?
6: You know, in about September 2019, a Melbourne artist called Tia Kass, who's done a lot of amazing work, um, contacted me and we started talking about what was then going to be 20 years of the Afghan war, which was um, October this year in 2021. And the idea of collaborating between artists and journalists about what the legacy of the war was. And both of us at the time, and I'd say it's even truer now, felt very frustrated by the fact that the media coverage both here and overseas about the Afghan war was pretty spotty yes now and then it got coverage but generally speaking australia's role was often ignored and this of course was before the brereton report about war crimes obviously this is long before the taliban took over in august this year so as the project developed obviously covid happened there were delays and various other issues but in the end we collaborated with a number of afghan artists here and overseas two in australia Kadi mali and Elias Salawi, two overseas two women um, Orna Kazemi and um, Najiba Nouri, and these artists all do work from photography to sculptures to um, work on walls a range of different work and reflecting on the legacy of the war these obviously are Afghans themselves so their experience of the war is, is quite different to myself and Tia of course we're not Afghan although I've spent time in Afghanistan so the project developed over that time it launched um, a few weeks ago and what it meant was Uh, a number of public events, which were going to be in person, but of course COVID sort made that impossible. So we did some events um, on the actual anniversary of the war on the 7th of October, which is 20 years to the day that the US and its allies, including Australia, invaded Afghanistan. And it was really an attempt to get away from the news headlines. Yes, obviously the Taliban taking over in August is a major issue and we didn't ignore it by any means, and it's a pretty grim future for artists and people who have critical views in Afghanistan. There's no doubt about that. And we're not ignoring that at all. But I think too often when the Afghan war is looked at, the media, of which I am, and sometimes I say sadly part of, has a very short attention span. So what was the war about? What did it achieve or not? What is the legacy for Afghans? What is, for example, the fact that most of the voices that we hear in the media are urban Afghans who lived in major cities, who are devastated by the return of the Taliban? And we're not for a second... Minimising that, in fact, most of the people who are involved in our project are those kinds of Afghans. But the truth is that 70% of the Afghan population are rural and they don't live in the major cities. And for many of them, the last 20 years has been an absolute hell because of the war. And again, not because they all support the Taliban, they don't. But there's a lot of Afghans who, in fact, welcome the fact that the country now is far less at war than it has been for 40 years that there are many Afghans who, if they're given a choice between two bad options, namely Taliban rule or US-backed corrupt government, they will choose the Taliban. And now where that plays out in the coming years, of course, is very hard to know. And the Taliban is facing a profound... the government is facing a major crisis because many western powers aid in the country was essentially fueled by aid has now dried up and i hope that that changes very soon but one of the ideas behind the project again was to listen to afghan voices to hear afghans to actually hear them talk about the war and what art and journalism can do to both challenge what's happened in the last 20 years and reflect on it so as i said there were a few events a couple of weeks ago we're doing some events at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne in April, which hopefully will be in person if the plague is kind to us all. <laughs> and then in August next year at Blacktown up here in Sydney, which is a major art gallery, we're having all the artists. Those four Afghans I mentioned before, Tia Kassa's work, he's done some amazing portraits of a range of Afghans here and overseas, and some of my photographs when I was there in Afghanistan in 2012 and 2015, and there'll be a month of exhibition, there'll be public events, engagement up there um blacktown lga is the largest um, area with afghans in the country and many of them are refugees not all but many of them are and i guess the idea behind the project and people can find out more if they go to 20 the word 20 hyphen yrs.com all the details is there um, including my photographs and other kind of work and we wanted to challenge i guess the narrative that the afghan war is either over all the Taliban had taken over, and therefore it's a very black and white future, mm. not to minimise what the Taliban will bring, but, you know, the Taliban took over, and the media was interested for two weeks, and everyone's pretty much moved on. Well, the Afghans haven't, and Australia had a deep, deep complicity and role in that country, including the killing of at least 39 Afghan civilians, although it's arguably far more, and we want to address that through a journalistic and artistic project.
0: One of the artists that oh sorry one of the photojournalists that you work with is Andrew Quilty and mm. look at his Instagram it's pretty
6: extraordinary amazing um, amazing, yeah. amazing stuff.
0: yeah are you allowed, are you able to talk a little bit about him and, and what he's contributed to the project
6: I am so Andrew is an Australian journalist he started off here in Sydney I think working I think for Fairfax back in the day and he went to Afghanistan in 2013 and never left and obviously he's left to go on holiday and come back but he's been living in Kabul since 2013 and I've been following. His photojournalism for a long time it's really extraordinary he's published in outlets all over the world and we wanted to collaborate with him that one of the um, people that we featured in our project was a guy called Rezai, who is an Afghan refugee who came to Australia and ended up on the Tampa back in the day and the Tampa as listeners I'm sure will remember had a lot of refugees Australia didn't accept them and many of them are either forcibly sent back to Afghanistan or some, some ended up in New Zealand and elsewhere. And this guy, Rezai, um, was forcibly sent back to Australia after being three years on Nauru, treated horribly. And people often forget that Nauru was an outpost of Australian colonialism long before the Labour Party restarted this under Gillard in 2012. It was done by the Liberals before that. Um, Nauru has a very... Uh, difficult relationship for straight to put it mildly. Anyway, so we featured this guy Rezai and we wanted Andrew Quilty to photograph him and shoot him, video, a few months ago. And Andrew did that and the, the, the videos are on our website, the photographs we're going to post soon. And the reason we wanted him to work with us is, A, because we think his work is extraordinary. But secondly, Tia, my colleague, the artist in Melbourne, um, was uh, painted portraits based on photographs. And the photographs, in this particular case, were taken by Andrew. And Andrew has stayed in Kabul since the Taliban has taken over. He's still working there. He is publishing, as I said, uh, work in journalism overseas. He's publishing stuff on his Instagram page. And I'd encourage people to check him out. Um, he's obviously not Afghan, but he's spent years and years there, more than most journos have. Now, how long – my understanding was he was thinking of leaving there this year. Now, wh- how that's changed possibly since the Taliban took taken over, I'm not really sure – but I think one thing I'd say finally is for a number of journalists who have stayed there or who are visiting there now. In general, it's actually arguably safer now to be a Western journalist than it was before. I'm not talking about for Afghan journalists; it's a different story. Many of them have left. The dangers for them from the Taliban are real.
0: Why is that, though? Why is it? So- um,
6: well, for a lot of Afghan, or well, a few reasons. One, a lot of Afghan journalists were women, and at the moment although there are some afghan female journalists who are working still in Kabul, particularly many of them left because they were petrified of what would happen when the taliban took over some have stayed some haven't been allowed to work because the taliban don't allow it. some are simply um, being harassed a a great deal by being out in public when they are being journalists by taliban one of the Challenges that afghanistan faces and there are so many is that there is a bit of a disconnect between the taliban political arm, Which was for many years based in doha often negotiating with the u.s And the taliban that were fighting in afghanistan for the last 20 years and i'm generalizing here But in general the taliban in afghanistan are far less open to the idea or the thought of women potentially working or being seen in public And in many parts of Afghanistan for the last 20 years, although we often didn't see this much in the press, you didn't see women. I mean, often we see images of women in Kabul going to university in the last 20 years, and we're featuring one of those characters in our project, a woman called Fatima Mohammadi, who was an artist who was sadly killed a few months ago in a terrorist attack before the Taliban took over. So the women like that undoubtedly, to some extent, benefited. I mean, I'm honestly putting aside her tragic death, but benefited from education in the last 20 years, but in many parts of Afghanistan, women's lives did not change. They did not go to school. They were not seen in public. It didn't change at all. And um, for some Western journalists at the moment who are either based in Kabul or others who are visiting, in general, and again, there have been exceptions to this, they have been able to work relatively freely and relatively at peace because we shouldn't forget the danger often from militants was not just the Taliban, it was also sometimes ISIS. And ISIS is still a presence in Afghanistan and committing terrorist attacks, as some listeners will be aware. So I guess one of the ideas behind this project now moving forward is what will the legacy of the Taliban be? And because the exhibition in Blacktown next year will be one year since the Taliban took over. We can assess that. What has happened to the artists? Have they gone underground? I mean, one of our artists, Cardi Ali, is briefly, who's based here in Sydney, is an Afghan Australian, but had an, a studio in Kabul since 2005. They made the really difficult decision when the Taliban took over in mid-August to essentially not just abandon the studio, uh, to destroy the artwork because they were petrified that the artwork would be found and destroyed by the Taliban anyway, and the people who had it would be punished. So a lot of his work, not all of it, but a lot of it was lost because his colleagues in Kabul made the horrible decision, although he would argue the right one, to destroy this artwork. It's a really, those sort of stories don't get heard much, and we thought that artists and journalists often are, at the front lines of conflicts, for better or worse. At least they're reflecting on it or talking about it. And this project is trying to address that. And I guess I'm playing, obviously, a small role in helping to coordinate it and speaking about it too. But the aim is to is to centre Afghan voices, which I think often are lost.
2: And briefly, what role do you think art plays in uh, in understanding issues that maybe journalism can't touch, which is, of course, you've devoted your life to this?
6: so much i mean obviously as a journalist i think that journalism does an okay-ish job now and then but i think art can do an arguably a more important one um why i think artists can be have a bit more distance they can be more reflective they can be less kind of immediate and journalism is generally what happened today or yesterday Uh, i think also a variety of mediums that artists can use just including in our project there's photography There is sculpture, there is amazing tapestries that Kadi Mali does. There's a range of different mediums. And for some people who are looking into this, they can react to that kind of work. And I think there's also a more open uh, option to, I guess, understand what conflict and war does to generations of Afghans in this case. I mean, the country's been at war for now 40 years. And we felt that Afghan artists are often not really heard in the West. There are some exceptions to that. And I think they have an ability to reflect on what we in the West have done to Afghanistan for the last 40 years. And I think many of us in Australia and elsewhere haven't really come to terms with that horrible legacy.
0: Mm.
2: Well, for more information to check it all out, head to 20-years, that's 20-yrs.com. And uh, it's the project with Melbourne-based artist Tia Cass and Afghans around the world, plus Annie Lowenstein, who we've been fortunate enough to speak to this morning. Thanks very much, Anthony.
6: Thanks, guys, for having me again.
2: Independently
1: yours, Triple R. 102.7. My dad picked me up uh, from home yesterday and we went and played a round of golf, which was a little bit exciting. Uh, beautiful day for it. it was Gorgeous. Just, it was lovely. Actually, in fact, were you a bit too hot maybe? To be honest, you know, if when the clouds went away and it was the sun, yeah, yeah, I, I was. Um, but yeah, thankfully it was It was pretty cloudy, so it wasn't too bad until the end, I think it was. And nine holes, I'm not sure if any of you guys have played golf, but nine holes is my limit, to be, to be fair six would be perfect for me. I don't know how people play 18. My dad loves golf and, and he plays 18 all the time, but he's actually a member at Melton. So he hasn't been able to play because it's outside of his zone. Yeah. So we've just been playing at local places. Anyway, um, I get into the car and then uh, dad says to me, he goes, oh, Emil and the Sniffler, <laughs> Snifflers, Emil and the Sniffers. I said, yes, he goes, I see they're playing at that big concert. I said, yeah, they are. He goes, yeah. Yeah, I like Emily and the Sniffers. He goes, never no. heard of them. Yes, right? He goes, Sarah loves them, doesn't she? I guess she does. <laughs> he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. I, I didn't think that I I would. There's a lot of
0: music that I didn't think I'd like. He goes, but yeah,
1: I like that security song. Anyway, just blew my mind. Get
0: out. Blue. It makes me feel so good Oh, that we've got through it. to Mr. McCumber.
1: Oh, Honestly, I think you know his favorite song is "Pearly Shelves." So this was just unbelievable that <laughs> he's loving Amel and the Sniffers and yeah, just getting excited about. So that was it was a good start to the day. Um, now we, we we got to the golf course. We played at um, Albert Park, and I'm not sure if you guys know when you're playing golf. There's a few different rules and etiquette and things that you okay, do. Okay, I got to
0: put it out here. Yeah. I don't know golf. I hate golf. Okay. But- so I assume I know absolutely nothing. In fact okay. I know less than nothing because I dislike it so much, but I love that you play it. Okay. I yeah, don't sure. dislike people that play it, but I just wanted to yeah. put that out there so that you understand how well little aware. I know. Yeah, and how much yeah. you hate. I hate it. Okay, good. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't hate golf. That's a total exaggeration. It's just I, I, I engage so little with it that I know yeah. nothing. So yeah. I need you to explain everything.
1: Okay. Either that or, I mean, if you want to go grab a coffee oh, or something. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> that might be easier. Um, one of the things uh, that you do in golf, if you're hitting the ball uh, and it could hit someone, to warn them, you have to scream out,
0: "Fall!" Yeah. It's right? no, so, a real thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. Oh, I thought it was like a joke thing. No,
1: it's a real thing. I don't know where it come from, but that's what you do. And at the moment, like you make the bookings and you can only book two people at a time and there's, there's lots of bookings. So it's like back to back. And so you, we had to wait at the end of every hole uh, because it was like a backup of people. Ah. Um, so people are, and sometimes you just get a little bit you know, impatient, and people will have their shot a little bit earlier than they should, um, and just because the fairways, you're playing alongside other people, and I just every time I hear it, I, I, I freak out because you don't know where the ball's coming from because people are playing all around, or if it's
2: coming towards you, exactly.
1: Well, that's what I mean. Does everyone duck at
0: once then on well, the
1: course? I, I absolutely duck because I think this thing's going to hit me in the temple Eww. and I'm going to be knocked out. So they scream, thaw <laughs> yeah, and so I. <laughs> I know. So I have like gone down, like there's going to be a bomb and I've covered my head and everything. And my dad's just standing there, didn't move. And I'm like, where was that? And he's like, oh, it was over there. And I look around and other people are playing golf and no one reacts. I'm like, is this, is it embarrassing that I'm the only one doing it? Anyway, and I reckon normally I would hear it maybe once or twice when I'm playing. I heard it a dozen times yeah it was so people are rusty oh my god so and because everyone was just so close to each other um but then i like when i hit it i'm like oh I, i've called for once and it was nowhere near anyone and people kind of turned around and i felt like an idiot so i don't norm i don't call it anymore and yesterday i nearly hit a guy but anyway it's fine it didn't hit him mm-hmm. he did hear it bounce and he kind of turned around i'm just like
2: sorry right Put
1: both my hands up that's that's sorry um but
2: if you're sorry if you're calling for to someone ahead of you yes then you should not have played the shot in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's that's correct. Mm. Yeah. So is this a new thing in golf? Do you think people are just being more risky? Like they're happy to be more risky because they're impatient?
1: I think when you when it's very busy, yeah. there are definitely people call out for more often. Yeah, yeah. Normally, because like what day? It was a Thursday afternoon at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. But because it's one of the few things that you can do, it was a beautiful day, there, there are many people there. So if it's busy, you get it a bit more. Anyway, this guy, uh, I I heard someone screaming about it, doesn't it? It was insane. Um, And I just thought he was doing it willy-nilly, but apparently he kept nearly hitting this guy and I went to have my shot and this guy near me has just turned around he goes, you need to stop hitting balls, you've nearly hit us, and went off. His nut. At you? or something? No, oh. no, at the person that was playing behind him oh. uh, because they just kept going too far and it obviously had nearly hit him a couple of times and he went off his nut. I don't know. I just don't normally see that kind of behaviour mm. on the golf course. Everyone's kind of relaxed, having a good time. People are
0: still afraid. Do you think it's yeah. pandemic tension? Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's de- definitely a little bit of that. <laughs> you know, I, I played with my dad once um, and... Uh, another thing, Etiquette, that you do, I think you mentioned this uh, during the week, is oh, when you're on the greens, walking through the line and stuff. Yeah. But another thing, you're not supposed to bring your golf buggy onto the green mm. because it's it's a pressure surface and you make indentations and stuff. And, and there was a couple that were playing um, ahead of us, a couple of young blokes just having fun, and they've just pulled their buggy right onto the green. And I've watched them. I was like, oh, oh. you don't do that, right? Anyway. My dad who doesn't normally say anything. He's yelled out. He's like, oi, get your buggy off the green, you don't. I'm just like, oh, my God, Dad, just mm. calm down. Mm. Anyway, it seems like uh, tensions think, are high.
2: But <laughs> on thats the were the you moment.
1: happy ultimately that someone spoke up? You know what? I i was, mm. but I probably he was at a 10. I probably needed a five. Right. But at the same time, he did it, and I didn't say anything. I yeah. would have just been annoyed
0: at it and not yeah. said anything. Did the so man right. stop hitting the balls? When like when he got yelled at, did the man stop? Oh like no, to... he got oh, he yelled oh. at him
2: for the for the buggy on the
0: green. Yeah, yeah, but like, but but with the in your situation, yeah. The, earlier, Did the man stop hitting the balls? Did, like, did the cracking at work?
1: Um, well, I didn't hear. F- there were only a couple of holes to go and I didn't hear four after that. So he must have slowed down uh, and I just know. let them go through.
2: I was on C- Queen's Road, is it, driving yeah. past around that time. And oh, I was, l- I was looking for you because oh. you can
1: see oh. from the road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, d- yeah,
2: didn't see you. No. Um, my window got cracked open though, so oh, I, I think <laughs> I heard your shot. No, I... <laughs>
7: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
2: Vanessa Tahulk is with us to talk tech. Morning, Vanessa.
5: Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all well.
2: We are. We're chipper as.
5: <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, I thought that we could uh, have a think about Britney Spears and all the news around her lately. Uh, Did you all follow the freedom from conservatorship story that was going around?
0: Yeah, we um, had a bit of a chat about it uh, during uh, the media segment recently as well, kind of digging into it a little bit.
5: Yeah, yeah, I heard that. And I don't know about you. I mean, the whole story was full of tragedy and unfairness and it was kind of devastating to hear. But the bit that really jumped out at me was that uh, Britney Spears' father hired a surveillance company to um, to track things that his daughter was doing, and one of the really simple things that came out was that they had access to her iCloud account,
6: Whoa. and
5: that really horrified me. And um, and I just thought, my gosh, regular parents debate with each other: to what age do we monitor our small children's online accounts? Yeah, and man. here this was a grown person you know, being surveilled their intimate messages, their FaceTime calls, their browser history, their photos, their notes, all accessible um, by a security company and her father in this case. Did this get on your radar at all?
0: I hadn't heard about the iCloud being monitored, no.
5: Well, apparently it gets covered a little bit in uh, one of the documentaries that's coming out about Brittany and what she's been through. but I thought, you know, it's, it's unusual to see this happening um, so publicly, coming out so publicly about a worldwide celebrity like this because this sort of behaviour is actually not uncommon in abusive relationships. And it's something that I thought, gee, we can just put a bit of a light on this. Um, one of the challenges, I think, is that it's, it's so banal. It's almost like, oh, my gosh, you have to explain how this is evil to people. It's just about people having separate machines logged in with Britney Spears' iCloud account. But actually that's incredibly powerful and that feature has been designed for convenience. It's been designed to make it easy for Britney to use an iPad and an iPhone and a MacBook and all these different things within that universe. And Apple itself prides itself on its privacy capability and its ability to let you go in and manage those sort of things. And yet... The second someone has your credentials, hmm. um, it kind of all falls apart and it's so important to keep control of that sort of information to maintain your privacy. So I thought, um, you know, it's it's such an interesting challenge for companies to design convenient features but also design the sort of privacy protections and um, almost like alarms and awareness calls that let you know, hey, check in on this, make sure that you still know Who's accessing your devices? You know, what's going on behind the scenes? And I think it can be so difficult to spend time on those things because you're just like, oh, as much as we love privacy and we care about it, lots of surveys show how we're really willing to trade it away for convenience, for saved time to manage these things. Nobody wants to think, oh, my gosh, having a f- smartphone is another administrative task. Mm. So,
1: <laughs> Does Brittany, did she know that um, her dad and um, the security company had... Uh- access
5: to her iCloud? It's been difficult to determine. Um, There are lots of Britney stans and supporters who have said they did think that she was aware of that because they talked about coded messages in the sort of media that she would put out there. Um, But the surveillance company was also bugging her bedroom. So I do wonder, you know, to what extent it's possible to comprehend that. We know that people don't behave normally when they are being surveilled, So you can become a bit, I guess, captive to to that scenario and you can either forget Big Brother style that you are being surveilled 24-7 or you can sort of go the other way and lose what is your authentic behaviour when you're private and by yourself. Um, So, yeah, it's really hard to know in her case. I'm sure it'll come out over time. What a poor life.
2: What what do you think guardians should have access to? You know, at what point? do you forego it and are there legal ramifications or is the technology just too early on for there to be any status quo?
5: Um, I'm not the expert in the legal ramifications. In the states where all of this presumably happened, there are some protections with mail fraud and wire fraud sort of um, legislation, but there's actually very little in this space which protects people from Technology being used to stalk aware. Mm -hmm. They are trying to get protections up in numerous states. So I'm not completely up to date on that. I'm sure that there are some protections somewhere, but it's getting better. But I thought that we could talk about things that people can look for um, if they suspect that something like this might happen. And when you hear this list of things, you might go, gosh, that's difficult. But anyway, we'll address that in a moment. So one of the things to look out for is an increase in data usage, it's unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, Battery drain your phone being hot because, you know, spy apps are running in the background and draining your battery. Um, Screen activity, when your phone is in standby mode, so you'd expect it to be black, it's just sitting there, no one's touched it, and it suddenly sort of wakes up. So that sort of thing. And screenshots and recordings, you can check those folders, check your galleries, see if things are cropping up that you don't remember taking. Because sometimes some of these apps forget to clean up after themselves. Um, So there's those, but as you can hear with those sort of things, it's just like, oh, my gosh, this would just make me paranoid if I was trying to follow this list and things. I'm suddenly quite terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Is it this or is it just the classic Pokemon Go making my phone hot? Who knows? Mm. Uh, (laughs) But there is more practical help all over the place on the web and one really great place for people to go or for you to send people if they suspect that people might be surveilling them through their devices is the Clinic to End Tech Abuse it's run out of Cornell University in the States and it has really comprehensive guides on detecting when someone's spying on you um, and it'll break it down into different platforms and things so it has information about iCloud, how to strengthen your security, how to check you know, if there's other devices accessing your cloud at the moment, how to boot them off you know. um, and also it gives people pragmatic information like if you do this and someone is doing something they will know that you have kicked them off or they won't know that you've kicked them off so that Ah. you can make those decisions and figure out how to protect yourself. Um, It's, um, you know, they'll give you guidance on particular things for Android phones, checking for hidden apps and sideloaded apps, um, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, all these security tips, ways to clean up your privacy and security settings. Even Hotmail they've got covered. They must have been going for a while. They're pretty great so
2: hey th- don't knock hotmail <laughs> some of us have still got yahoos mm,
5: mm, i love seeing a yahoo on a on a resume <laughs> <laughs> <Dusted. Daniel Bird>. <laughs> <laughs> oh gen x represent love it yeah. um <laughs> yeah look it's it can be serious stuff but i think you know lots of the tools are out there to protect yourself it's just kind of Making a pact of yourself to check in regularly and go, is this okay? What are my risks? You know, um, have I kept it boring? Is everything safe? <laughs> and uh, and I think it's it's worth mentioning every now and again. If it can happen to Brittany, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's happening actually relatively commonly to people, and it's it's pretty um it's pretty rough. But there's lots of things that you can do. So go out there, get some advice, chat to your tech friends. Um, and don't share your password around. Don't, don't give people your PIN numbers and what have you. Um, yeah, develop trust in other ways.
2: Oh, how revolting and confronting.
0: Yes,
5: <laughs> terribly.
2: Check your hot yes. phone. All right. Uh, and the Cornell, can you lead us there again? Is it C? I
5: can. Yeah. It's the Clinic to End Tech Abuse, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, tech. Dot cornell dot edu
2: all right vanessa de holger thank you very much
5: thanks all bye
0: triple ah oh.
1: i've got a friend who is uh he's been with his partner now for about three or four months and now uh they're thinking about moving in together um i was curious as to how long people normally wait till they move in together um my last two relationships have been long distance and my partner's been from adelaide so it's been like 18 months um but then they moved to Victoria and then we moved in together. Uh, but I was asking my friends last night how long, and most of them were kind of six months, and they're with their partners, they're either married, kids, or just still together or, or whatnot. Um, so, yeah, initially when uh, I, my friend was talking about moving in, I thought it was a little bit soon, but I guess
0: it's it wasn't really considering my friends and stuff. How about you guys? We're, how? I oh, So I reckon the rules on this have changed yeah. in the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Because now... In not seeing each other. I just think people are moving in with each other faster than ever before. Yeah. Because, you know, you get locked out from seeing one another and then you're like, I may as well stay at this house. I've just Mm. noticed lots of friends moving in with new partners very suddenly. Yeah, right. And I don't know if it's because of the human interaction or the need for wanting to be locked down with someone. I don't know. Have you noticed that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And my judgment about it, it's like whatever works, I don't care. Oh, totally, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it is, yeah, different.
2: Uh, But, yeah, also just paying rent somewhere else and then crashing – elsewhere
1: Mm. is
2: increasingly a spectacular waste of money.
1: Completely. One of my um, good mates who I was messaging last night, she actually, I was living in a share house with her. I'd forgotten about it because she was only there once or twice a week paying rent and Mm. just staying with her now husband. Um, But she didn't want to make that step to moving in with him. So she's like, no, 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 well, I live here and I'm just staying at his place. It's like, oh, please, Mm. you're paying rent here (laughs) for absolutely no reason. What if you're
2: uh, moving in? What if you're always at a share house yeah. that's where you're staying i've never been in that situation oh
0: it's it, i remember when we were younger it was so excruciating there's always like the partner who spent too much time the drama of yeah the person i was a very self-conscious partner so if i was ever visiting the house you know of a, of a partner i kind of didn't want to you know I was scared to have a shower in the morning yeah. to time it incorrectly it was like yeah. i don't want to get up at the time someone needs to have a shower but we had friends who lived with um, a girl who had a boyfriend who was just like, he had no concept. He was quite young. He's had no concept of how he'd taken over the house. Like, they'd come home from a day at work and he'd just be sitting playing video games in awesome. the lounge room on their TV. And they'd be like, we just watch some TV. And he's like, yeah. oh, I've been playing this game for like eight hours. I really need to finish it. Oh and my God. it was just, you know, that person and it would have showers whenever he wanted and would like <laughs> cook massive meals. And they're like, you don't live here like you're not that, you know that strange fine line between uh, you don't pay to be here you yeah can't exactly just like play video games on our tv for eight hours
1: yeah no you have to have respect for the people that are living there definitely um
0: oh, well, I, I have respect for that do you you yeah. are are you the guy playing the video games no way
2: but i oh.
1: respect
0: that he doesn't give a shit, <laughs> he didn't give a shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like a real what about
2: bob about it <laughs> uh,
1: um i was looking up because i was interested um moving in with your partner and tips and just read a couple of different articles and there were three things. There were a whole list of things that they were saying that you should you should do to prepare yourself with moving in. Um, but the top three were working out a budget between you and your partner, um, oh. chores. Who talks about this? But the third one uh, was your stance on pets uh, because, yeah, you, you could be with someone for a, a year and a bit. And so I was with a, a partner for a year and a half uh, and she had a husky, massive dog. Um Probably wasn't trained as well as it could have been, but that's okay. Just a big dog. And I have never been an animal person. Yeah, as we know. Yeah. We hate them. <laughs> So she made the move to Melbourne. Had to ditch the dog.
0: For Wait, you? for you.
1: Well, you made her ditch the dog? Well, we were living in an apartment. Your and dog we ditching Bobby. No, I'm not. Well, I mean... Yes, but we were living in an apartment building and the husky, there was no room to run around, it was a small balcony and I just, I was so anti-animal. I'm just like, I just, I can't. Oh, my God, I, and the we, relationship failed. You if, made her get rid of her dog. Oh, my God, and you know what the worst thing is? I've now got a puppy with my... But it's a small yeah. puppy. It's a small puppy and it's it's in an apartment. But, yeah, stance, stance on pets like, is It's a, me or the dog. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I, I probably did say that to be honest, and now I, I feel horrible. I can't believe I brought it up just for everyone to know how horrible I am. No,
2: you're not horrible. I, and uh, one bedroom, two bedroom. I mean, what? How? What are the dimensions of a husky? They're giant, aren't they?
1: It was huge, and she had a backyard, and the yeah. backyard wasn't even big enough for this for this husky.
2: So how do you get rid of a husky?
1: Oh, she. there was a lady at her work who had another husky and so she adopted the husky. Oh, thank God. So whenever we... um, No, we just left and left it in the backyard. No. Um, So whenever we went back to Adelaide... We went and visited the oh, husky. Who nice. was so happy and just treated like a queen. Like this lady had since retired, and so these dogs were her world, her life, and yeah, the husky was um, very happy with its new family. So well, do you? Everyone get, was better. Do off. you
2: do big goodbyes or do you just ghost the husky? Because oh, it, it's too sad.
0: I don't. I don't like digging in on this. It's making me sad thinking you're the husky. It's very
2: sad. It's but a, it's I, very I,
0: happy now. Happier than it's ever been. not great?
2: <laughs> what, a, what a fantastic. Happy ending. Really?
4: Yes. <laughs> really? For all of us, except the for Sarah. that we're looking for?
0: <laughs> I also don't believe that the top three things you'd check off when you're moving in with someone are like, okay... Do you want to live with each other? Oh, yeah. Okay, budget. I know. Mm. Do you like, are oh, we going to get a dog in a year? Like, you know, cleaning yeah. schedule. I just mm. don't, like, what, in what world is it? You're ticking those boxes yeah. with someone. I don't think anyone's having those conversations, to be honest. They're no. like, they're hard
1: conversations, but you need to have them. Yeah. No, you don't. I you know. just have
0: fights about them for three years. Exactly. And you break up.
1: <laughs> Closet ice habit.
2: That's yeah. the...
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, get that one out of the way early. Triple
7: R. I'm hungry, I want something to
0: eat
3: Something with a crunch and very sweet
0: right. Soon
2: to be gallivanting gastronome Michael Hardens Here for his scheduled food interlude Good morning
3: Good morning, yes I do have my gallivanting shoes ready <laughs> To get out there the moment that I can be released
2: Yes, and, but in the meantime Are you uh,
3: you're just cooking for yourself I suppose? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like you know. I guess that's one of been, been one of the things about lockdown that we've all sort of increased our repertoire, if only to uh, you know stop from going completely insane. So you mm. know, it's like, what are you watching and what's for dinner? So, <laughs> that's the yeah. of basically it, days, isn't it? So. Uh, w- um,
2: what about today?
3: Yeah, well, I sort of I've, I've been uh, looking at. I've, I wanted to talk about miso today because it's uh, it is one of my favourite things in the world. It's um, you know, sort of a wonder substance as far as I'm concerned. It saved me from quite a few hangovers and miso <laughs> soup I think is one of the uh, great hangover cures of the world. Um, and it all sort of comes down to, it sort of it falls into the category that's very popular in the food world these days of um, fermenting. fermented foods are, are very big. All the, all the um, in inverted commas, cool kids of the, uh, you know, the food world are all all into fermenting, particularly around koji, which is the, um, which is the ingredient that ferment, is, is the fermenting ingredient in miso, which is made with, um it's traditionally made with soybeans and salt and koji, which is like a, it's like a fungus and a mould at the same time. It's kind of quite cute looking for a fungus. Um, it's um, it's sort of a white, fluffy fungus that that um, inoculates the well, no, inoculates, it, it grows over the soybeans and ferments and turns them into um, various different things. So depending on how it's used. So Koji is, um, you know, it's it's the thing that, that makes me so um, into the salty thing because you leave it on there, um, you know, to, to the the darker it goes the saltier it gets but it also um koji is also used in things like um mirin the the rice vinegar and things like soy sauce and um you know things like sake as well are all so it's all koji is this sort of wonder beast that can do lots of different things but um with miso it sort of turns the the be- the beans into a, like a really delicious paste that has a lot of Different, you know, applications all over the place, and is actually reasonably healthy for you in terms of, you know, it's a fermented thing, so it's got some gut health stuff going on there. Even though it does, it does give you a huge whack of salt. So, um, you know, you have to sort of keep that in mind if you sort of think about it as a health food. But it's sort of like I mainly think about it as a hangover food. Yeah. So, you know, salt is where I'm at.
2: And so, where the- where do you store it for the hangover? Sorry to get base here, but like, is it? Do you have it pre-prepared the night before, or are you going out to get it, or what's the deal?
3: I usually have it in the house and just make a miso soup myself. I can get this, this perfect, like it's one of those things that it's sort of like this perfectly reasonable, um, Miso soups that you can get in packets from the supermarket. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like it's it's probably not the greatest in the world. Like, if you want to be a bit of a miso purist, you need to read your labels a little bit. And what you what you're wanting to in a in a miso is to sort of like minimise the the number of ingredients on the label. So you're wanting looking at sort of soybeans, maybe a bit of rice or barley rice if you're you know going gluten free, and it's sort of more traditional. Or barley grains mm-hmm. are in it, and salt is what you're you're wanting, and then. And if you're using, you know, starting with a paste, you kind of, you want to, it's not just sort of miso paste and water. You want to be making it with a bit of dashi broth. So, uh, which is, you know, a little bit of fish, a little bit of seaweed, or it can be all all seaweed if you prefer. Um, so it's... Um, that's that's kind of like and then mixing those two together. But you know, I can't I have to have to admit that sort of most of the time if we're in hangover mode, yeah. it'll be coming out of a packet.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah.
3: Nothing wrong with that. <laughs>
0: yeah. What is it about the miso that makes a good hangover? It's just the
3: salt content. I think it's the salt content. It's sort of like there's something about it and like a bit of the dashy broth and kinda of, I don't know, there's something that, you know there's there's all this like cult around Koji and what it's, it's like a magic food and all of this sort of mm. stuff but I kind of there's part of me that sort of believes it because I can remember the one time that I sort of discovered it I was in this like this is this is a story I remember when we used to be able to travel I was at the Tokyo fish markets early one morning and I'd um, hit an izakaya the night before quite hard <laughs> and, um, and so I was staggering around looking at all this raw fish and then thought I really need something to eat and it was in this tiny little um, sushi bar and all of a sudden I was in there and I thought, Oh, I think I'm going to vomit. Um, <laughs> I'm packed in this uh, tiny sushi bar. Oh, there's no escape. And then this miso soup landed in front of me, and I drank it. And within seconds, it was sort of like this. I felt this like revitalized thing. So I'm I'm, I'm a I'm a huge fan of that. So, um, <laughs> okay. but um, I think the the fermented side of things, you know, is and it, and it's kind of like the the other thing. It's like it's a really ancient food as well. Like you know, it's it's in a lot of um, across Asian cuisines, like there's sort of versions of it in Korea, there's versions of it in China, but uh, Japan, I guess, is the one that it's really most famous for. And they've been, they had a um, a, a um, miso bureau that started in 701, which AD, which was that they've had that there ever since to sort of look at the way that it was produced and sort of you know that kind of thing, sort of keeping an eye on it. So it's sort of like it's very important in Japan, and there's probably um, around about, they're sort of saying, like more than a thousand varieties of miso in Japan. Whereas, you know, in, in Australia, you're gonna be, it's much much more limited than that. So you're sort of looking mainly at um, kind of like white miso, red miso, um, and, um, and, then a, and then sort of red or brown miso, and then sort of a mixed, which is sort of a yellow miso. And so you use those things for different things. So the, a white miso, it's like a pale sort of cafe latte color. And um, it's um, it's quite it's sweeter. It sort of depends on, on high, the higher the amount of koji to soybeans, the sweeter it's going to be. So it's kind of like you know it's a lighter one, and the sweet one is really good for using in sweet food. You know, it's a, it's a great to add a little bit of salt element. It's particularly good if you make it into you can make it into like a caramel. Um, so you mix it up with some butter and cloves and um, mis- and then sort of the miso in it and you pour it like a caramel over apples and it's absolutely delicious. It's similarly good. You can use like, a, like a mixing miso with butter and then using that if you're making like an apple pie. And so it just adds that sort of salted caramel kind of um, quality to things but it's also it's also amazing you know you can make pickles from it because it's got the, the fermented sort of thing so you can coat vegetables in chopped up vegetables in pickles and turn those into sort of like really quite salty delicious um pickles as well it's got it's very it's great with meat it's really good on seafood it's fantastic with vegetables like that miso butter um i've tossed through like um green beans like steamed green beans and then you finish them off with with This miso butter that tosses through that it just gives you that added, you know, umami element Mm. that uh, you don't get just from from salt alone.
2: And the miso soup, uh, what's the vegetarian status on that?
3: Uh, Miso soup is pretty much if you just need to watch your broth, the dashi broth. um, So it's um, you know, miso is is obviously vegetarian it's just soybeans and, and mold um but uh yeah with with a miso soup you just check out to see if the broth that's being used in it or the stock that's been used in it has any fish mm-hmm. in it. but there are there are some there are they're excellent um just purely seaweed dashi broths around so um you can you can avoid it, yeah. avoid it Ooh, really easily God. if you want to if you want to keep all venture and
2: speaking of C, you've been watching Squid Game. What are you binging?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I binge. I did Squid Game in two nights.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: yes. desperate times. Is
2: there, is there anything else we, we want to get off our chest about Miso before
3: we leave? Um, I think that, uh, I think we're pretty done. Oh, it's really good. There's another thing. If you want to, if, if you're a meat eater, blend it up, like blend some, mix some miso in with your Dijon mustard mm-hmm. is a really good thing. And it's fantastic in salad dressings as well. So it's, um, you know, you can do it with, it's great with like, you mix it up with, uh, with tahini and some jalapeno chilies. And, um, it makes a really, really good sort of creamyish, ish salty-ish, um, uh, uh, dressing for your salad. So it's, um, yeah, just, just get into it. That's sort of like, you know, and I'm telling you, the next time you have a hangover, which is probably going to happen, seeing we're all going to get a little bit excited as we're released into the world again, Yeah. stock up on some miso. Yeah. That's, that's my advice. I've
2: heard someone say so plaintively. I think I'm, I'm going, going to vomit. vomit.
1: I'm still laughing at it. <laughs> I
2: think I'm going to vomit. <laughs> all right, Michael Harden, thanks heaps. Triple R. Hi, Ovi and the with us this morning. Hey, Ovi.
7: Hey, how are you?
2: Good. you You'll be here next week.
7: Yeah, I can't wait. I'm really excited. Um, although looking at that equipment, I guess I'll just have to learn how to use it. 45 <laughs> a.m. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, that's all right. Just look at the microphone and talk and point. <laughs> Talking that direction. Jason will take care of the rest. Um, okay,
7: uh, have you Have you met your team? Yeah, um, we actually met for the first time. So I went and met them at Princess Park for like a couple of beers, maybe two days ago, Um, and that was they were awesome. So I'm really excited. But um, it did it was nerve wracking waiting for them like um, to turn up. (laughs) Oh, like (laughs) like a like a first date sort of vibe. Um, Yeah, it was like very first date sort of vibe. I got there and like. because I've just forgotten how to, like, be a person outside, I guess, like everyone. Um, but the park was just packed with, like, all these really cool-looking teenagers. Um, <laughs> I was just, like, standing by this tree for ages, um, and I just didn't know what to, like, do with my hands and everything, and it was just really awkward, I felt. like um, um, People were, like, waving. Like, people would wave, and then I'd think they were waving at me, because I didn't know what Jason and Dylan looked like as well, so I was like to go from lockdown to that was a lot. Yeah. was um, really I mean, the deep Yeah. People would wave and I'd like Try, you know, like when you try and look cool, but you also are waving in case it's them. Um, And and they were like waving to people behind me. So,
1: uh,
7: yeah, that sucked. But, um, but yeah, it was good once we got there and, um, yeah, that was super fun. I feel like I was laughing a lot. And then at one point, like a bit of food flew out of my mouth and I was laughing. And I've been thinking about that for the last two days. So, (laughs) uh,
2: what about emerging from lockdown? Are you, are you ready?
7: Um, yeah, well, I thought so, like, the sun was positive this morning, and then I went outside to water my plants, and I got, like, fully swooped by two birds, so, (laughs) um, yeah, I think, I don't know how to feel, I feel kind of dead inside, but, um, yeah, (laughs) what about you guys?
2: (laughs) Oh, look, we're fortunate, we're we're authorized. We're essential. We're essential. So yeah, you are. We've
0: been we've been relating to one another. I don't know how to talk to people that aren't Bobby and Daniel. That's right. To be honest, yeah. or but but otherwise we're okay. As we're just yeah. going to hang out a lot on our holiday
2: together. Yeah,
7: <laughs> Sounds like you're like on a big trip or something. Yeah, yeah road
2: trip. <laughs> and when we can't do that, we'll zoom. Yeah. Yeah.
7: yeah. <laughs> Will you, do you reckon you'll wake up at the same time because you're so used to it? I hope not. Yeah.
1: You guys. Yeah.
0: I reckon I will. You reckon you will? Yeah. Mm. No. Just,
7: yeah. Get some sleep. Um. Yeah. I'm. I'm low key worried that I'll not get up. But I think. I think it'll be okay. I've been trying to practice this week going to bed early. Um. But I've just been like lying awake looking at the ceiling for ages. So I still. <laughs> That's a great to idea. six thirty. Do you
2: have
0: any? Does, do you have any advice? Or you not that you ask for advice.
7: Just yeah, like I would go. Actually, you know, just like this, this, go, this this for a,
0: go for a big run. That's all yeah. I can say. I've never done that once, but I feel like it would <laughs> maybe help. Mm.
7: Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, the other thing about Jason Dillon is that they're, like, freakishly fit. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> are they they, are, yeah, they are. like, a fun trio thing we could do is, like, run the marathon in December. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, I'll just make the snacks and, like, meet you with some drinks at the finish line. <laughs> um,
2: also, I think at 6 a.m., don't talk about how early it is. Yeah, never talk yeah. about how
0: tired you are or how early it is. Because the people
2: listening are up early. They don't, you know, you're not. They don't care. They don't care. Mm.
7: Yeah. Yeah, I'm probably talking to people who work a lot harder than me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that sounds, I I won't. I'll just be like, guys, I'm so ready for today. (laughs) (laughs) Express excitement. Exactly. (laughs)
2: What about upskilling in lockdown?
7: upskilling and lockdown um i've been like i said the only thing i've been doing religiously is um tarot cards you guys see them? see oh this yeah. is
0: exciting we love bobby love it bobby's bobby used to be a reader
7: Oh, no way, really. I'm not, I'm nowhere near pro. Like I just Google no, everything I get. Um, How long did you read for, Bobby? Oh, no,
1: I, I honestly did it for about six months, but it freaked me out because I got a couple of things right. So I, I had to throw away the cards. It was too scary for me.
7: Oh, my God, that's so intense. Yeah, I feel like every time I have something stressful coming up, um, I always get like the worst cards. It's like the Hanged Man or um, the Ten of Swords and stuff. And it's like literally a picture of a person with ten swords killing them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What is
2: it a metaphor for? Or um,
7: you- it's meant to when they try and put a positive spin on it, it's like rebirth and stuff. But um, oh, yeah. I feel like it's just like you're stressing out and um, getting in your own way is something I get a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been doing tarot and, um, the charts and stuff. So I feel like you got to keep that. You can't just like go straight into like the outside world and talk about it constantly because people hate you. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but I've been always kind of like that. Cause, um, yeah, when I met those guys the other day, it was like a really big full moon. I don't know if you saw it, but, um, I went through, it kind of reminded me of this phase. I went through in year 10 where I like literally decided I was a witch because <laughs> 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 you can have like, um. Which is like in the Wiccan religion, and I found this book that was um, about how to be a witch and like a witch shop as well, where this wizard (laughs) would sell you spells and stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, throughout high school, basically, I just had like low self esteem and stuff, and this book was just speaking to me. It was like, do you want to be beautiful, like on the inside, but also on the outside? Here's a spell for you. Yeah, it was like, I thought it was such a game changer and I became really obsessed and um, just like collecting acorns are like a big, like lucky symbol in the Wiccan religion. Um, What do you do 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 with the acorns? um, You just kind of keep them with you. I feel like I still have like an affinity to acorns and elves and stuff. (laughs) when i say affinity i mean like constant if i see an acorn or like an owl no matter where it is i take it as a sign so (laughs) it's pretty good um and yeah and then i found this spell that um was on how to look beautiful and i had like a full monobrow and just was like had you know pimples and all of that like a normal teenager um So, yeah, I waited, I went to the reject shop and bought all these, like, oils and candles and stuff that they sold there, Um, 50 cents, goodbye, (laughs) (laughs) and and waited for the full moon and did this spell to be hot, um, like, with burning my own hair and stuff, it was, like, pretty intense. You burnt (laughs) your own hair. I burnt my own hair, but I was, like, into also cutting, like, asymmetrical fringes at the time, so yeah. um, I had a bit to spare.
2: <laughs> burnt hair and reject <laughs> shop candles. That would have smelled great.
7: Yeah, my parents are like, I've been through a lot, I feel like, with my growing up as a teenager. Um, but, yeah, I did that, and then nothing changed um, the next day, so like, sadly. Um, but then I feel like a few weeks went by, and I was at my job, like um, – at the time just like you know my part-time job just waitressing and um i heard these like just like old seedy men basically leering at me and they're like hey little sexy and then i like ran to the bathroom and um i, I know you're meant to feel creeped out by that but i was just like exhilarated <laughs> um, and i was like it's working it's working um, which is really sad now that I look back on it. <laughs> it's like your first try, to try moment. Um and I totally mistook it. I was like, finally um someone thinks so <laughs> much. And then um all these acorns are
2: worth later. it. Pardon? All these acorns are worth it.
7: Yeah, legit. I was like it's happening. Um and then two weeks later, twins from um, the boys' school, like that was like sister schools with fine, said that I was hot. And it was like this mystical, um, it was like the first time anyone my age had called me hot and it changed my life. <laughs> so <laughs> so what, what do you reckon
2: the moral of the story is, Ervie?
7: Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I sound really vain. Um, there's, there's bigger things to life for sure. Um, but I just think like magic exists and I'm not afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> magic happens. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, just happened to me the same time I was going through puberty, but, um, I still feel like it had an impact, you know? Yeah. Are you still a witch? Do you still practice? Um, I feel like we get witchy. Like sometimes with my friends, I have sleep overnights where we'll do, um, tarot cards and, um, birth charts are a big thing at the moment as well. Oh, but yeah. I wouldn't say I'm wicked because I feel like, I feel like people who are like wicked I actually like respect it. but um i feel like i would be like kind of like um cultural appropriation if i just said i was that now
2: yeah what about dylan and jace do you read their palms or anything at the park or
7: well i had to like stop um myself from asking what their like star signs were because i feel like you can be offensive i don't mean to be but um i think if you're opinionated about star signs i find myself often being like you know all Geminis are freaks and then um, someone in the circle will be like, I'm a Gemini. Yeah. Um, so, you don't want to go like full out there, but I'll I'll definitely find it out in the course of next week, I reckon. Oh,
2: looking forward to hearing all about that on air.
7: Yeah, every chat segment I've got it planned out. A different awesome. Uh, and let's,
2: uh, what about the room that you run? Is that coming back?
7: Yes, um, so Deathbed Comedy with uh, Prue Blake and Jordan Barr, which I run, um, is coming back on the 10th of November, um, and we've got some really special guests lined up. So it's exciting, and everyone has to share a secret, which I'm sure lots of people have had time to think over lockdown. So we'll yes, get some exactly. interesting ones. Uh,
2: well, thanks for sharing your secrets this morning, Irvi. We'll catch you <laughs> 6 a.m. Monday.
7: Yes, can't wait. Thank you so much. Bye.
3: Independent Melbourne Radio Three rrr